0: Welcome, Law Nation, to a new episode of the Passive Income Attorney Podcast. As always, I hope you're having a fantastic week. When you have a moment, please go check out EscapetheBillable.com and snag our free passive investing guide. It is absolutely free. You've got nothing to lose, guys. Go check it out. Have you ever wondered if you should incorporate a company to start your side hustle or to invest in real estate? Many of us may not even know where to start. Today, we welcome attorney Jeffrey Love to the show, where he'll discuss the five W's you absolutely need to know before starting a business. Jeff is a partner at gibbs Guiden in Los Angeles and shares his law school alma mater with yours truly as a University of San Diego grad. He has extensive experience in all things real estate and corporate. All right, let's get going. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Of course, man. Really, really appreciate you coming on today. I'm
1: happy to be here.
0: Yeah, brother. So, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story. So, I am a
1: call it, call it real estate, corporate M&A, transactional attorney. i with all transactions, whether it's buying and selling buildings, buying and selling businesses, deal with startups, really everything in between. Um, I wanted to get into real estate as far back as I could remember. We had a bunch of family friends that were entrepreneurs and they seemed like they were just weren't working much and kind of getting passive income from these projects. And it seemed like a good way to make a living. So from UCLA, I went to law school down in San Diego at USD, um, focusing on really taking (laughs) transactional classes, knowing that I wanted to want to get in transactional work, didn't have an interest in criminal law or litigation. After law school, it was it was the last real estate downturn. So nobody really wanted to hire a transactional attorney. So after a little bit, I found my first position was with a scrap metal recycling company, you know, kind of being their first in-house counsel. And that kind of sealed it for me. I like transactional work. I like dealing with people from there. I went to a real estate development company. Figured I really want to get more into real estate. Get that passive income, um, learn about seeing what, what they're doing. And I was there for about a year. It was a terrific experience and realized, you know, I don't really need to be the entrepreneur myself. I kind of like being in you know, behind the scenes and helping different clients of different sizes, working on different transactions. So I left the one client, which was the company I was working for, and joined Gibbs in where I am now. And I help startups through. Fortune 50 companies with real estate work, with corporate work. Um, I think my favorite though is working with entrepreneurs and investors, kind of helping them grow and, and see the progress that they make throughout their business and their careers.
0: That's awesome, man. So, what's kind of your, your typical client look like? Typical. I don't, you know, the, the nice thing about my practice, is I don't even have
1: a typical client. Every day is different. Even during the day, I'll work on a client that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a client that was creating a a cryptocurrency hedge fund. They came to me and said, I don't know anything about cryptocurrency, but I could do the securities work and the corporate work for you. And that's what I did. But that was really interesting to learn about. And, you know, today I'm working on a project for a real estate developer that is taking um, an old apartment building you tearing down, rebuilding it, and with the business plan of leasing that to a co-living provider in an opportunity zone. So helping them create that value for them, not only the developer and themselves, but all of their investors as well. Um, so completely different clients, love them both. But I, I think my favorite type of client is, you know, those earlier on stage companies where they grow and they don't necessarily have all the pieces figured out yet. And to see them grow from, you know, an idea into a full fledged business and see the mistakes they've made along the way and learning. And, and sometimes it doesn't always happen. Like, hey, Jeff, you're right about that. That's that's the best part. <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time. They don't want to admit it. But You've when they come back say that, and, you know, I've had a few times, like I said, not all the time, but kind of learning from the mistakes. Even if they don't say it, you, you can see when that light yeah. bulb kind of clicks and say, yeah, that, yeah, that's a better way to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. You do both corporate and real estate. So you can get a, you know, a wide swath of, of different types of entrepreneurs and, and um, people that are, that are investing and in, you know, in business, man.
1: Yeah, that's it. It's, it's, it's neat because you're, know, it's people, and it's not always their core business. Sometimes it's, I might have a client that's investing in the side or buying their first you know, commercial real estate project and they don't really know what to do or how to do it. But they're thinking outside the box, and maybe this is my retirement plan, or this is my kid's savings, and teaching them, walking them through that process, and then seeing them go on to their second project or their third. Uh, to me, that's the exciting part. Um, could kind of see them grow and, and see get them get that kind of extra extra cash flow and start these new businesses.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, are you an investor yourself? I am.
1: I, you know, I
0: wasn't always, but I
1: kind of taken my hint from the cl- my clients and my wife and I, we bought our first apartment building about two years ago. Um, completely different investment strategy than most, but it's, you know, ours is not about cash flowing as much as it's two blocks from the beach. It's for our, our, our kids one day. So, you know, we're just buying it. We're letting it sit with, you know, a residential mortgage, 30 years. And one day our kids will have this, this great property that hopefully appreciates. And in a few years, it will start cash flowing better and better. And hopefully we'll be able to take that and buy another one and another one and go from there. Yeah, when you buy a property that close to the beach, it should appreciate. appreciate. And it's, you know, it's it's for me, it's buying something in an area that you understand. It's 10 minutes from my house, can use the same Vendors to plumbing issues and electricity, so I know and I know kind of what things rent for because I used to be a renter there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really understand it, and our goal is not to, you know, cash flow or make a killing off of it, but it's to let it appreciate over time and hopefully cash flow and really leave this asset to our kids one day. And I'd advice of one of my partners; she's done the same thing. we were actually able to gift part of it to my two-year-old and four-year-old who already own, you know, 10% of a, of a building. I wish, my, I wish my parents had done that for me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Same here, man. Same here. <laughs> well, let's keep it simple. Um, should you form an entity to invest in real estate? It's a good question.
1: You know, you know, you're both <laughs> sides of it. My, my, what I tell clients is typically yes, because it's an extra layer of protection versus just insurance. If you form an entity, whether it's typically in real estate or in any cash flow, real estate in particular, you're looking at your LLCs and limited partnership. So you're avoiding the corporate level taxation. You're avoiding issues of moving properties in and out of a corporation, which hurts an S-corp. So those are your entities of choice. And for, for me, when I think about it, it's if you have tenants, if you have an apartment building, someone has a party, someone slips false well, now they're suing the tenant and they're suing you. You've got an Amazon delivery coming, someone's slipping, someone falls, they're suing you. And while insurance might cover it, there's so many exclusions to these policies besides just the limit, you know? You might have a, a maybe it's a million dollar limit, and maybe someone has a brain damage. Well, now you have a $5 million claim. You have exposure there. I'm sure all of these companies were, were in COVID, they didn't think that their insurance policies excluded business interruption from this. But they probably thought they were covered, but they weren't. So I don't, and I tell clients, you don't want to run that risk. Have insurance, but also create the entity. The cost isn't prohibitive, you know, especially if you're buying, you know, Southern California, you're buying a multi million dollar property. The cost to create the entity, even the franchise taxes you're going to pay are worth that added level of protection.
0: Yeah, I like that, man. I like how you explain that, you know, insurance isn't enough because a lot of people think that they can just own property or own businesses in their own name and then you know insurance they get insurance and they're covered but you know there's a limit to that the insurance as well as you know insurance companies are smart they've been in business for a long long time and they know what the common outs are and they know how to get out of you know certain settlements so um, it's certainly important to to form the correct entity to protect yourself even further
1: it, it really is, and it, it's not, you know, it seems like it's a lot more work, but it's, it's helpful, not only from that, but it, it, it's easier to, to get the expenses. There's a lot of pros to actually creating it once you do it, and you really want to, what I tell clients, you, you really want to do is it helps you segregate your assets. You know, we, even with insurance, I don't want my personal home or my car or my, you know, money I'm making from my practice to kind of be combing with the real estate. I treat that as a separate business and creating the LLC to hold it is the way to really protect yourself and keep it separate. Um, And it's like you said, insurance may cover it and insurance may cover everything, but this gives you that added protection to know even if you didn't have insurance, very worst they're coming after what that entity owns rather than all your other assets.
0: Right, and it's very easy to do. I mean, you put a little bit of work up front and a little bit of cost up front, and then it's pretty much taken care of. You know, you have your annual minutes, but other than that, it, it's pretty simple to to maintain going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I know this is something you're an expert on. Let's go through the five Ws of incorporating your business, um, whether that's for real estate or starting a business or a side hustle or whatever it might be. Let's
1: do it. So. As if I can remember them from when I was a little kid, you have the, the who, <laughs> what, when, where, and why. That kind of, some of them are a lot more important than others. cover kind of quickly. Who is, is really anyone that wants to protect their business? You don't want to be a sole proprietor. You want that added level of liability protection where if someone's suing you, they're going to sue your business and your other assets are segregated. Um, but what is one of the bigger ones? And it's what type of entities you create um, there are benefits and drawbacks to really all of them. So you want to pick the one, talk to your advisors and consultants, not only your accountant attorney about which is right for you. If it's an active business, you may want to this corporation because you can save money on FICA, especially if you're actively working in an employee. But there's a limit to how many shareholders you can have. If you have a lot of investors above 100 or investor is an entity, that might not work for you regular corporate, your kind of C corporation, Um, works for a lot of different businesses. You have a corporate level tax. With changes in administration, that tax may go up even more. So you wanna be cognizant of that and make sure that that entity works for you. Specifically with real estate, like I said, we look at limited partnerships and limited liability companies because it's passed through. Any tax actually goes through the individual. You're not paying a separate level of tax. It's very flexible in the fact that profits and losses can be allocated differently than ownership. So while you may own 90% of the business, we could be able to split profit 50-50. And that's really valuable for real estate, especially when you're dealing with investors. So a lot of different entities out there. You want to pick the one that fits your business the best. And it's not a one-size-all fits. You may have two different real estate companies and, One's maybe a limited partnership, one's an LLC, but for different reasons. So we've covered the who, we've covered the what, when is, is really as soon as possible. Before you, before you want to buy a property, you don't want to form it and have it sitting there, but at the same time, once you sign on the dotted line for a purchase agreement, even if you assign that later, use real estate as an example, or with any business, really, you have liability for that, for indemnities, for representations, So when you you sign as an individual, you're on the hook even with an assignment. So if you have the ability to create a company earlier on and use that to run your business in, the earlier really is is the better way to go. So who, what, when, so we've got where and why. Um, Where, it really depends on where your business is. So you use real estate as an example, talking about passive income, we're in California, it doesn't make as much sense for us to form a company in Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, which you hear about a lot because then we have to qualify our business to to do work in in California, which means now we've got franchise taxes in another state plus California. But if we were buying a property or or our business was in Nevada, maybe we wanna form a Nevada LLC, Nevada Corporation, because it gives you a much greater ability to remain anonymous. You hear a lot about big companies being in Delaware because they have they're they're very corp- corporation friendly. Their laws have been interpreted more than in, anywhere else. So there's a benefit to being in Delaware, especially if you're bigger, but you have to weigh all the consideration, especially money and taxes, to see you know, whether that makes sense to have a Delaware LLC if you're buying real estate in California. Um, last one jump into it quickly is why is. Maybe I want limited liability. I want to segregate my assets. I want to protect myself. I, I may want the ability to you know, market it separate from myself. It gives that kind of professional um, feeling. It's not Seth or Jeff, Jeff's business, you know, Jeff's, uh, Jeff's taco stand. It's, you have a real name to it, which helps you with, with marketability, helps you, you know, attract customers, raise investment. There are tax benefits we talked about with you know with an S-corp versus other entities. So you if you want to take advantage of any of those different items, that's a reason to incorporate. You know, there are reasons not to, whether it's you know it's it's the cost, whether you might, you know, you're buying residential property, lender may not allow you to be an entity. You may have to get the loan in your own name. So that's a consideration at the beginning. But when you weigh all those, typically when you go over them with clients and talk to your accountant, typically organizing or incorporated, the pros of it will outweigh the negative aspects of it. So there you got it. The who, the what, the when, (laughs) the where, and the why. Still a little kid. I got to count them on my fingers for (laughs) sure I don't forget.
0: Awesome, man. You covered all five. I counted. (laughs) I thought that was an interesting point about signing a purchase agreement as an individual and then later assigning that to, you know, an LLC that you create later. Cause a lot of people do that, but there's a certain amount of risk to that.
1: It does. It happens. And not just that, when you're starting with, you know, a term sheet you go through this process, you sign it, and, and I'll create my entity later and then I'll assign it. But especially in the commercial context of real estate, mm-hmm. you may be referring to certain indemnities. You may be getting a phase one or doing inspections on the property. And those indemnities would fall on you personally. Because even if you assign it, the new entity becomes on the hook as well. But the seller's not relieving you as the buyer, as an right. individual. So it's something to it's to weigh, you know, am I creating this now? Maybe I don't use it, it doesn't go through, versus I'm protecting myself from these indemnities and these other aspects by creating it and actually entering into the contract under that specific entity. And we've had clients run into issues with you know being an individual because something happens during that due diligence period. And there is a claim and now it's, there's no liability protection. There may not be insurance. So they've run, they ran the risk and it ended up being on the wrong side of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are some of the other mistakes, common mistakes you see people making whenever, whenever they're either investing in real estate or even just forming their entities?
1: That's a really good question. One of the biggest, and it, it seems so you know, commonplace, you know, and so simple is, not thinking about what you're doing from high level, whether you're investing in real estate, you're starting a business, not just creating like a business plan, but where do I see myself in this company in five years or 10 years? And just a recent example is I had a client, two partners created a real estate business and one is significantly older than the other. And now they're fighting and they're potentially going to be, a call it a business divorce, because the older partner wants to pull money out of the business. And yeah. the younger partner wants to contribute everything, leave it in there, grow it, build this empire. The old one says, I'm done. I, I, I built mine. I, I want this money for retirement. I want to go hang out on a beach. So they didn't plan that from the beginning and make sure they were both aligned as to where they wanted to be. And that happens a lot, not just older and younger partners, what are we both going to devote in terms of time to this business? Do we have another job? Is this a side business? Making sure that you're aligned with real with real estate. Are we going to put money back into this? Are we going to maintain the property we currently have? Are we going to grow more? Are we going to bring on outside investors? So looking at your business from a high level, making sure that you've thought through what's going to happen in the next three, five, seven, 10 years to make sure that Everyone's aligned. Even if you don't have a partner, it helps your, yourself to think about that because life throws kind of curveballs at you. You could get married, have kids, be in the middle of a pandemic, and you want to make sure that you've thought, you know, I'm going to devote myself to this business and making sure that you've thought through it. So when you get these curveballs, you're able to focus on what's important and not worry about addressing those external those third, third party events. So that it doesn't affect your business. Um, yeah. One more, yeah. I got one more good one for you. And this one is, is not you know a specific one. I can give you 50 examples of where it comes into play, but having a good team in place. You know, starting a business, whether it's real estate or restaurant, a, um, a professional services firm making sure that when you're setting it up and even running it, that you have this team. So using real estate as an example is, do you have a good accountant? Because if you don't, you're going to leave money on the table because you're not going to take the proper deductions. If your books are going to be a mess. That's, your, that's a team member. You have a good insurance broker. We talked about how important insurance is, not just from a liability standpoint, but casualty. Do you have a broker that can save you money and, you can call them, you can ask them questions, integral team member, you know, not just for real estate, but for really any business. Do you have do you have a good attorney? You know, and every business, you know, it may be hard to offset because money's tight, but do you have a good attorney where you can bounce questions off of because you're hiring a new uh, a new employee and you don't know if you should be an employee or an independent contractor? You're confused about The new laws that were passed in California or elsewhere, you have that attorney that you can use him if and when needed. So having not not just consultants and professional service providers, but if you're growing employees, having that team around you, because it's one thing I have learned, not just clients, but myself is it's impossible to know everything. And one of the hardest things with new business owners is thinking that they have to do everything and that's not the case. It's can you have a good partner that you can go to and be able to know, I don't know this, ask someone else, you're going to be more efficient. You're going to look better. You're going to get a better answer, but you can only do that. If you have the right team around you. And I've had so many clients that haven't had that team and they run into an accounting issue or they run into a legal issue. They have an insurance claim and they didn't have those policies in place. And then it comes to us as attorneys and we have to, try to get them out of that situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A couple of really good points there, man. I mean, it's really important to have those hard conversations up front with a potential business partner and get all those potential problems in writing so that you don't run into problems in the future. And then of course, like you just said, I mean, build an all-star team. And even when capital is a little bit short at the beginning, you need to, you know, you still need to consult with experts, have them on your team and, and don't be afraid to, you know, if you have to spend a little bit more, Bit of money to have those experts and get that expert advice it'll pay off in the long run it was really true and, and, and
1: not all of them I and mean, some of them are you know maybe commission-based so you're not paying them for any question and you know even as a attorney you know just because you call me it's not going to cost you 20 hours it might be a five-minute question um and that may save you money we've had you know a lot of clients it's and it's really hard and people still do it all the time. Is can I save money this way or that way? And can I create a you know, LLC by using one of these online service companies that'll do it for 350 bucks? Yes, you can. But what ends up happening more often than not is 12 months, 18 months later, I get a call from that person. My operating agreement didn't say this, or I didn't deal with the proper allocations. Can you fix it? And it ends up costing you more money later on than you would have spent up front. So it's just something you budget when you're starting that business or growing that you have expenses, but those expenses are more often than not, they're worth paying for because it'll save you money down the road.
0: Absolutely, man, you got to budget that stuff in. Um, I've heard a a couple of different opinions on this. I'd like to get your opinion on it. Should you form an LLC to invest in, let's say just a passive investment or, or a real estate syndication? I think that you have some good questions.
1: That's another good question. I think it would depend on the value of the investment. If I'm going to invest $20,000 into a, a, um, a syndication and that's a fraction of my net worth, very small percentage, it may not be worth it for me to have an LLC just for that investment. But if I'm investing a large chunk of money, a quarter million dollars, or I've got investments in many different syndications, then I might create an LLC or a vehicle to hold all of my different investments not just from an administrative standpoint that it's you know it's easier but again it may allow me to save money through deductions and offset some certain expenses and you know as it it depends on that syndication is run they may do something that exposes the members to personal liability maybe that operating agreement has a capital call clause or maybe it has a cross indemnity and we've all guaranteed something and I didn't really read the operating agreement, so I didn't know that it was in there. That, those are the situations when having an entity or an LLC to invest really do help. So, as many attorneys say, the answer is, it depends. It depends on the situation. <laughs> uh, there are cer- certainly absolutely times when it makes a lot of sense, but like many things we've talked about, you have to weigh the risk rewards, and obviously there is a cost to setting up that type of entity and maintaining it. While well, small, you know, talking about minutes and some franchise taxes, it could end up saving you a lot of money, exposure, and you know, worst of all, the headache and stress if something were to happen by protecting yourself with that investment.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so you know, if you're going to continue to invest, you know, fifty thousand dollars here and you're there, and you know, over the period of time and you have a lot of money invested, then it might make sense to look into you know having an entity form just for that particular type of investment.
1: And you think about it too, so you think about you know, from a like, very large scale family offices, how it might be an individual family, but they're not investing as family. They have a separate company and often many subsidiaries of that company investing because they're segregating assets. Maybe one project they're investing in has an environmental exposure component and they don't want that investment to affect their other investments. So that's why having that LLC could protect you and maybe even several different LLCs, depending on what you're investing in. You look at each situation and determine I've got some exposure here. I want to protect myself, but with exposure in the risk comes a big return. So I'm interested in the investment, but I'm just going to protect my downside as well. Yep.
0: Yep. Well, let's dive into syndications a little bit. Um, There's been an explosion of real estate syndicators out there in the last few years, and I'm sure you've seen it and you've been a part of it. So, you know, what are some of the best practices to vet a sponsor or, you know, general partner, whatever the, the term being thrown around happens to be that day? You really, I think you really want to look at your the track
1: record, and you are absolutely right. There's just so many out there, and it's so easy with all the crowdfunding sites out there now to go raise money. Um, and and there's there's great sponsors, and there's ones that aren't so great. Kind of put it mildly, in you know, especially a first-time sponsor or syndicator, they may run into problems because they haven't learned, they haven't gone through it. It's not to say that a subsequent project they won't hit it out of the park, but they may not know that. I'm developing a building, you know, or, you know, whether it's value out or grand up, ground up, and I've really got to keep an eye on my contract because I don't really understand cost overruns, and I've watched a HTTV show on flipping a house, and I'm <laughs> syndicating that, and I don't realize well I've got carrying costs that they don't necessarily show and, and other expenses, so it's not as easy as it always looks. So. I think the first thing is really looking at their track record, what they've done, what their background is. It may be their first syndication, but maybe they worked for another syndicator. Maybe they worked for a development company. So they're a lot more experienced than the accountant that wants to get into real estate and starts their first syndication. Beyond that, I'd really look at, you know, when they're presenting the deal to you, how do they present it? Is it, have they prepared a private placement, random, and they prepared a a good summary or prospectus on this deal or are they just coming to you saying hey i'm gonna buy this dirt that has a taco bell on it uh you want to you want to invest in i'll you know I'll, I'll guarantee you this return well I mean that's a red flag for millions it's not just the way they presented it but it, they use the word guarantee and that's a lot of early sponsors will, will use words like that but as an attorney when we draft these documents That's an absolute no-no. We use use words like we we project and we predict and anticipate because it's real estate. You can't guarantee things because you just don't know what the market is. And a sponsor that's guaranteeing something hasn't been in the trenches. They haven't had a deal go bad. And maybe you never do, but you're lying if you've said you've never had a a hiccup and a deal. And you learn from those hiccups and certain things like that is what I'm looking for to understand does this person know what they're doing and being able to run this project from, you know, start to finish. So I'll look at things like that and tell the client, you know, when you're talking to the sponsor, you want to ask them these types of questions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Totally agreed, man. What what are some specific things in the legal documentation, the PPM and the operating agreement in particular, that um, some potential passive investors might want to look at when they're vetting a deal?
1: I really look at the summary and look at, you know, we talked about words like guarantee, but, what are the basic business terms? You know, Make sure what they've presented to you, whether orally or in another document is actually in these legal documents. You know, the PPM, while it's out there, it's not always your binding document, you look at your operating agreement. So right. if they're anticipating paying you a 8% preferred return in your PPM, take a look at the operating agreement and make sure that everything's consistent. i have had a lot of deals where one document will say one thing, one will say the other, and while well, it might just be a mistake, You don't want to buy a lawsuit or have to make a claim against someone if you can catch that from the outset, making sure everything's consistent. Uh, Another big item we always look for is, what's the sponsor being paid? Are they getting a portion of the upside after you get a preferred return? Is there a a waterfall or what type of split are they offering? What type of fees are there? I've seen acquisition fees, disposition fees, asset management fees, construction management fees. None of them are wrong in a sense, but you want to look at the whole picture. What is everything this person's getting paid? I've had a client in the past that ran into issues because it was a, you know, was a syndication, but it was for a development deal, ground up. And they didn't disclose all of their fees, and they didn't disclose that they were paying, paying a development fee on a monthly basis. The investors thought it was just a, a portion of the of the profits, so there was a dispute in that. So, making sure whether you're the sponsor, just disclose everything. If the investor balks at it, they're not the right one. And if you are the investor, make sure that everything is lined is is outlined. You want to know exactly what this person's getting paid. There's no right or wrong answer as to what they are being paid. You know, the more experienced they are, maybe they're entitled to more or that it's a great project, but making sure you understand what they're getting. So these are items that, you know, you normally will see in a PPM, but certainly in an operating agreement, some of the disclosure documents so that you understand the full picture of what you're actually investing. in.
0: Yeah. For sure, man. And when I'm looking at a passive investment and looking at the fees that the sponsors are taking, I always like to see alignment of interest. I mean, the more aligned your interests are with the sponsors, the more they should care about the deal, the more they want to see the success of the deal long term. And I think that goes a long ways in you know the total success and outlook of the project. That's a great point. And the other
1: point, kind of ancillary point to that, is you know the, the phrase that they have skin in the game. Have they? Are they just raising money from everyone else, or they actually have put their own money at risk in this deal? To me, that's an important one because if they have money in it too, their interests, you know, are aligned, like you said. Rather than I'm raising a million bucks and I've got a hundred dollars in this deal. To me, a lot of times that's a red flag because they don't have any
0: exposure. If it goes badly, they don't make money, but they haven't lost anything. Right. Right. Let's switch gears for one last question because I think this would ring true with a lot of our listeners. And I was thinking about the other day is how do you deal with, you know, freeloaders or, you know, say Uncle Ned asking you for free legal advice or for some of our physician listeners, you know, why does why my leg hurt? You know how do you deal with that? Do you get a lot of that on a daily basis?
1: We do. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, especially, you know, with new potential clients, I've got a folder. I took the name from one of my partners. It's the uh, acquired but not hired. Is what we call it, the folder, and <laughs> the client comes in and asks you a bunch of questions. You talk to them for 30 minutes, and I'm going to sign up. Here's a retainer, you never hear from them again. So, yeah. what we try, we try to do is you know, free consultations is kind of, I feel it's kind of more of a thing in the past. If someone calls, you know, I want to be there, I want to be present, answer some questions, and show them that we're the right person for them because there's a lot of other attorneys that do the same thing. There's competition in every industry, so you want to show them that you're not only a good fit personality wise and they can trust you, but that you have the expertise they're looking for. So I can't say, you know, until new client comes in, sorry, I can't talk to you sign my retainer give me five thousand bucks and I will answer your questions. But what I do try is put a limit on it. You know, I'm not going to sit there talking to the client for an hour and say 15 minutes. You know, this is what I think you should, you know, probably would do. This is some of the strategy, but not give them everything. You know, it's 50% of what's there and it's, You want us to do the work I'd be happy to let's get you set up as a client. So it's kind of a mix between, you know, giving them all the free advice or nothing. It's, it's that little bit of a tease to come in and show you that we are the right fit, but we're a service provider. We're paid, you know, for our time. If you want us to work on your project, then we do need to set you up as a client.
0: Yeah. Maybe give them a little bit of the what, but not the how exactly and it's
1: it's just it's a function of the business you know it's people do it it, it happens you know I have I'll say every week but you know every month you get someone like that that's that's coming in and sometimes it's not their attention you know they may right. want to come in as a client and they're asking some questions and they're fully intent to do it but then they just disappear um, and you haven't even given them that much free information but Setting up a client is even expensive, you know, as attorneys with, with paperwork and running conflicts and preparing an engagement or retainer letter, you take a lot of time and you send it out and then you don't hear from them and it's it's frustrating, but you never know people do come back as well. I've had clients disappear for potential clients disappear. Year later, they come back and now we're you know, working with them. So hence the uh, acquired, but not not hired. All, all those <laughs> like, notes go into I that, like whole, that.
0: I like that. I might start one of those folders too. <laughs> it's time for the Freedom Four. Uh, Jeff, let's jump into the Freedom Four. So, what's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy?
1: You know, I used to be taking some time to myself, driving to work, and listen to, listen to podcasts, just you know, kind of decompress. Now that I'm at home, I've kind of lost that. You know, lost the commute, <laughs> which people say yeah miss your commute, but kind of because that was my free time you know, now I try to just take, you know, 15 minutes here and there for got little kids. to so just just myself, kind of organize my thoughts. Um, and it, it helps just separate work at home and keeps me, keeps me motivated and keeps me going.
0: There you go. Yep. Got to take a few breaks here and there, man. In an alternative universe where you weren't involved in the law, what would you be doing? I would be a business owner for
1: sure. I advise them and I, you know, like I said, I like being behind the scenes, but I'm also envious of, you know, the, the risks, the reward, kind of running that business, your success rides on on your own merits. It's, it's, you're pushing that business forward. I don't know what it would be, but I'd definitely be, you know, hopefully the owner running some type of, uh,
0: some type of small, medium-sized business. I like that, man. Maybe you'll do it anyways. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I'll do it anyways. Another, another side hustle. Yep. There you go. Uh, where were we at five years ago and where do you see yourself and your business five years from now?
1: Five years ago, I was an associate at Gibbs Giddon, uh, hoping to become partner one day. You know, now I'm partner at the firm. You just hope to continue to grow the business, help help more clients grow their businesses, and uh, on the side note, help hopefully grow my my real estate business from a personal standpoint as well. Get take down another apartment building or another acquisition or two.
0: Yeah, cool, man. Well, I know that you're just getting started with the real estate investing, and cash flow isn't you know too high right now. But you know, how have you seen passive income income change your client's life and made it better? Yeah, even
1: even in my life,
0: it's it's both. It's because
1: you know there's, there's still money coming in, and it's it's something that you're not working for in your, your day business. It helps. It's that extra little money for that rainy day. Um, you know, I'm a broker as well, so. I don't advertise it, I don't do much with it. But last year I helped a, you know helped an individual buy a piece of dirt and I got a commission for it. And it was, was little work on my end. And that money to me felt passive and that's going to my kids' college funds. So with yeah. clients and they say, you know, passive is not something working for. You really want to build a net worth and become wealthy. There's only a certain amount of hours in the day being able to make money while you're sleeping. That's really going to help you get there and then you can use that money you make to make money on that money and reinvest it. And it's really just, you know, it gets you kind of out of that rat race and gives you a little bit more control over your, over your life. Cause you're not actively working for that money. Hence the word it's passive income.
0: Yeah. Control and freedom, man. That's what it's all about. Yes, it is. Jeff really appreciate you coming on today, man. Where can our listeners find out more about you?
1: Uh, check me out on my website. It's uh, www.gibbsgibb.com. I've got a LinkedIn page. Um, email me, call me. It's all on the website. Happy to answer any questions uh, or just,
0: just chat. Hi, right, brother. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks for having me on. All right, fellow Torero, Jeff Love. Jeff really broke down the things that we need to be thinking about before starting our own legal entity and specifically the five W's. It's best to get all of our ducks in a row up front so that we can hit the ground running with our new businesses and investments and set ourselves up for quick success. Now, if you want to take your passive investing to the next level, I want to invite you all to go to escapethebillable.com and get our free copy of our newest passive investing guide. Until next time, celebrate the journey.